Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, November 18th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Shayna Walsh. This week, we heard the FUV Sports Spotlight. It features stories from One on One, New York's longest-running call-in sports talk show. Lou Orlando and Thomas Aiello sat down with award-winning author Buzz Bissinger. They talk about his critically acclaimed book, Friday Night Lights, and his new piece, The Mosquito Bowl. So, Buzz, I mentioned your new book, but you are also very noted for Friday Night Lights, which has also become a movie, a very acclaimed movie. What was the inspiration behind that? And I also understand that you have become close with uh, Booby Miles, who is perhaps the most visible character from the Friday Night Lights saga. Can you tell me a little bit about why you picked, of all the places, that little school in Odessa, Texas to write about and just what you thought it would become versus what it has uh, turned into in culture? Well, when I decided to do this book, the inspiration was a trip down south uh, with a friend of mine where we went through all these little towns. And um, already then, downtowns were blown apart economically. A lot of storefronts were boarded up. But you would go a few blocks out of town and then you would see the high school football stadium. They were beautiful. A lot of them had built in the 30s during the WPA. Uh, they were well watered. They were painted. And I just said to myself, these aren't just stadiums. These are shrines. This is where people in small towns or at least isolated towns come together on a Friday night to believe in something. And from there, when I decided to do it, all roads very quickly led to Odessa. Odessa Permian at that time was legendary, not just in the state, but around the country is the winningest, most successful high school football team of all time in Texas. And that, that's a big deal. I mean, Texas football is a huge deal. And what sealed the deal for me to go down there was, A, I was able to get access, I got permission, but B, when I saw the stadium, which at that point in 1988 um, had cost $6 million, seated 19,000 people, um, you know, two-story press box. And I said, this is high school? I mean, it was magnificent. It was like a rocket, rocket ship that had landed um, on Earth. And so I said, all right. Let's do it. And so I went there with my family in 1988. It became Friday Night Lights in 1990. That was WFUV's Thomas Aiello and Lou Orlando talking with author Buzz Bissinger. Another one of our regular features is Cityscape, which aims to show off the people, places, and culture of New York City. This month, WFUV's Isabel Danzis brought us to Central Park to get a sense of what fall migration looks like for New York City's birds. Autumn in New York City is a great time. You can enjoy festive fall drinks, the cooling weather, and see the leaves change color. However, fall is also a really great time for bird watching. Birds migrate through the city, making it a really unique time to go looking for them. Fall migration starts in July. Once we get a few hints of northwest wind, just a few breaths, like <laughs> not even strong wind, we'll get the first migrants. That was Dr. Robert DeCanado, a.k.a. Birding Bob. He leads weekly bird walks through Central Park during the peaks of bird watching season. As the group walks through Central Park, to Canada plays bird sounds through a speaker. Or makes them using his own voice. As the birds emerge out of the trees, DeCanado points them out to his group of bird watchers. See the brown leaves over here? There's a golden crowned kinglet in there. Just jumped up. 
DeCanado says that the fall is a unique opportunity to see uncommon birds. You can even see larger birds, like eagles or raptors. Yeah, for me, I like raptors, the diurnal migrants. You know, over New York City on a day with northwest winds in September, October, you can see thousands of hawks on a good day. As you get later in the season, November, with strong northwest winds, you can get a golden eagle here or there. And while DeCanado says that it's cool to see interesting birds in the city, their layover here is an important part of the migrating process. See, in the city, you don't expect to see anything. So when you see something, it's, it's a major thing. But nature can't avoid cities. You know, wherever you go, most people now live in a city. And there are only more and more cities in the world. So if you're a migrating bird or any sort of migrating animal, like a bat or a butterfly, you're going to pass through a city at one time or another. However, it's not all fun and games for the migrating birds that take a pit stop in the city. According to DeCanado, the metropolitan landscape can also pose potential dangers to migrating birds. Cities have a lot of glass on buildings, so birds come down, and say, 5, 6 in the morning, stop migrating, and then they might be in the ground looking for food, the sparrows, for example, and something spooks them, and they take off. And glass is a big problem in cities. Birds will take off and think they're flying into the sky or trees, and what they're actually seeing is a reflection. So they'll hit glass at full speed, and they'll get stunned. And DeCanado says that glass has posed a threat to migrating birds for many years. I imagine it's always happened. If you go back to the 19th century, when lights were put up, put up, for example, the first ones were on Bedloe's Island, which is where the Statue of Liberty is today. Birds immediately started colliding with the statue in late May when they were turned on. And certainly by that fall, they were colliding. But the numbers of birds colliding with the light at that time was in the order of 150 to 300 a year. You know, it wasn't major. Even though these collisions aren't recognized as major, DeCanado says that the frequent occurrence of these small collisions poses the biggest threat of all. We've had some big kill events with light, and that usually what gets all the headlines, but it's the one, two a day at the glass windows that is actually more over time. DeCanado says that by educating people about birds is the best way to ensure their survival. So if you can get people interested in liking birds, the other stuff, how do we solve the problem, will solve itself. So it's an outreach. DeCanado says this begins by encouraging people to be on the lookout, to get in the habit of calling bird rehabilitators if you see a bird out of place on the ground. You know, again, most people in cities aren't aware that there's nature right around them and how much there is. You know, if, they, if you tell them, it's, oh, that bird should be out in the Adirondacks or, you know, in the Everglades or whatever. But this is an important of habitat for them is any place along the way. It's a stopover habitat. There's a lot of food. It's actually a very good habitat for them to get food in. While the fall is a great time to see birds migrating down south, DeCanado also says it is just as exciting to watch the birds come back in the spring. Something to look forward to when the snow thaws. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis talking with Robert DeCandido, a.k.a. Birding Bob, about the city's bird migration. Every month, we feature an interview from Fordham Conversations. And this month, I sat down with Jill Jones to talk about her new book, South Bronx Rising. We talked about the original book and how changes in the Bronx over the past 30 years influenced the re-release. You decided, obviously, to give a new edition, refresh it in 2022. Why was 2022 the year to update it? In 2017, I got an email from a reader saying that he'd read the second edition and he, and he said, you really should come back and write an additional chapter and for a third edition because so much is going on here. So much has happened. So I returned to the Bronx in 2017 for the first time in 14 years. 
in addition to the physical rebuilding of the Bronx, you had the return of arts and culture in so many ways, you know, all these new museums and then the environmental aspects of it. I I think you're touching on all of this and, you know, you're talking about, you know, the Bronx being rebuilt, but what did that really look like? Like when you came out? Well, the place looked thriving. Uh, Many new trees. I mean, the the Bronx physically looked much greener. And then there was a lot of new building and all this rezoning. Again, if you think of the Bronx as the seventh biggest city in the country, there's almost no city that was as abandoned and burned down as the, the South Bronx that has rebuilt the way they have. And the other thing is that the population had bounced back. I think the other thing to, that we can't really overlook in this um, is the idea of a gentrified Bronx. And, you know, as it's being rebuilt, that also means that there are people that are going to be leaving, that are getting pushed out. And so I'm curious when you were talking to people for the book, like, what exactly does gentrification look like? So, yes, I heard a lot about gentrification. It was a dominant theme. So if you know that 70% of the people who live in the Bronx are rent challenged, you know this is a real issue. At a time when New York was really booming, all of a sudden as they the city rezoned all these indus- old industrial sites along the Harlem River, and if you look at the many developments that are either finished or finishing, some portion of those are truly affordable, but the, the others where they're described as affordable, they aren't really. I mean, people were finding themselves pushed out because there was an entire new atmosphere in which your apartment suddenly was valuable in a way that hadn't been true 10 years before. You've spent decades engaging with the Bronx. What's one thing you learned about the Bronx in your research that you think people just have to know? Well, I I think the Bronx really is a place that shows that people power, so regular citizens who are savvy enough to understand how to create their own little institutions, which in turn learn how to plug into bigger sources of political power, economic power, can accomplish miracles. That was my co-host David Escobar talking to Jill Jones about the new edition of her book, South Bronx Rising. Fordham Conversations enlist the help of the Fordham community to tell stories about our world. And on yesterday's show, WFUV's Jaya Joyce sat down with Dr. Jessica Sessions, the Population Health Director of the Acacia Network. They discussed the organization's efforts in caring for newly arrived migrants in New York. So who are the asylum seekers that the Acacia Network is currently helping to house? Yeah, so the asylum seekers that we have been helping are, are, you know, they're from many different countries. Um, Most are from Venezuela. So most of our families are coming from Venezuela, but we also have families that are coming from Ecuador, Colombia, Honduras, but the majority are really from the area of Venezuela. What services are you connecting them to? So we have staff that are at the housing facilities currently, and they are really connecting with these families to then try to connect them to sort of 
on the ground services. So those are like your churches and your community-based organizations that are sort of working with the immigrants to provide a lot of the resources, such as um, clothing, um, you know, backpacks, help like getting around. Um, but we have staff on the ground in the shelters that are also doing like mental health screenings. So they're doing a depression screening and anxiety screening, just trying to find those patients that might be feeling really depressed or really stressed. And we're also connecting them to primary care. So those families that need medical attention, we're providing transportation for them to get to our health center. So we have been seeing lots and lots of children um, and basically doing blood work and making sure they're, they have vaccines if they don't have vaccine records, which most of them don't. We're trying to get those school forms completed and that way they can get registered into school and start school as soon as possible. Can you talk to me about the housing facilities? You know, there's many different housing sites. I know the two that we've been working most closely with are hotels that have sort of been converted into um, uh, housing sites. So the hotels have, which have been converted into um, sort of like a, a residence. So in, in those um, hotels, they have a room, they have access to food. Um, some rooms have a refrigerator, some do not. Um, but they don't really have facilities to cook. Um, and so that has been, you know, a challenge for the families because they are being provided food. But the food, it's a major culture shock for them. It's not food that they're used to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the kids are having, you know, digestive issues. Um, but it is a warm roof over their head. And, you know, most families, when you talk to them, they are very grateful to be in New York. Um, what we've heard is that, you know, they feel very welcomed here and they are really you know challenged to get around because the city is like amazed to someone who hasn't been here before but because of all of the resources that we've been able to connect them with you know they are starting to adjust to the change is the organization doing anything to help set them up for you know long-term settlement yeah um you know i, I think that's that's really remains to be seen for sure. I mean, what I can tell you is like, um, it's not necessarily up to us, but yes, some of these families are sort of getting relocated from the hotels to other shelters. Um, and that's, which is also like difficult because they're getting, you know, families and, and, and relationships are sort of getting, families are getting separated sometimes. And I mean like, you know, two sisters like in different families but again that sense of like my sister's here with me or my brother's here with me and now they're getting moved to a different place. For more information you can visit acacianetwork.org. That was WFUV's Jaya Joyce talking with Dr. Jessica Sessions from the Acacia Network. WFUV's Community Dialogues is a program for frank discussions about race, racism, and racial justice. For full episodes of Community Dialogues visit wfuvnews.org. And that's it from us. We'll be off next week for the holiday. But we'll be back the week of the 28th. After that, you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. 
You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Shana Walsh. And I'm David Escobar.